Well, we are excited this morning about the further progress of this meeting and the, the thoughts the Lord may bring. And we had the thought as Brother Grant was praying that we we hope that we don't, with our own thoughts or with our own notes, dampen anything that the Lord may have. Because I sensed in in uh, in your your singing. Uh, think about the heart that panteth after the water brook and, and the desire we have to have our vessels filled, that there is in all of our hearts an anticipation that the Lord would fill us and bless us, though we may not know what all that is or what it may mean. But think about this, this uh, first just primary desire that we have, that we be filled. We desire that the Lord would bless us and fill us. And at the moment, we don't care what that means. I mean, we, we, we don't want to restrict it. We want to be ready for it. We want Him to fill us, and we want to do His will, and we're ready for whatever sacrifice. It's easy to sit in here and feel this way, and it's a blessing to feel this way. Think about the, the heart that is panting after the water brook. I'm sure you've all seen this. You know, this deer is, is coming through the meadow, and he's looking for water, and he stops and uh, his ear flicks and he he turns and hears something and and uh, he's alert not only for danger but he's seeking something he's desiring it very much and he's willing to pursue it and david no doubt as he wrote this psalm sometime prior to this had witnessed this very thing and he said this is a good picture of my pure desire to walk with God and be filled with Him, be close to Him. I'm panting after Thee, O God. Let's, let's turn, I'd like for us to uh, look at a theme verse for this morning in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, and think about this as we think of what it means to be filled with and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. I'll read several, several verses here because both historically as, as the Lord brought the people from an old covenant into a new and also in our own practical experience we want to move from just dead letter to a living spirit. Notice this, this is uh, written regarding this transition and it's speaking of things that are glorious and transcending or, or tri transitioning into something more glorious. So this is what he says. Let's back up here to to the sixth verse. Speaking of God, he says, he also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament or the New Covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, remember Moses going up into the mount and receiving these tables of stones and all the beautiful and glorious things that were written upon those tables. If this was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses, for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, 
How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? In other words, there's something of the Spirit that is going to exceed that which was written upon those stones. Then he repeats it again, speaking in another way, ninth verse, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. This which is coming is more glorious still. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. And we'll get back to that 10th verse. <clears throat> For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. And so he's saying, like in the 10th verse, he's saying that that which is coming, which is of the Spirit, is so much more glorious that the previous thing that we thought was glorious, glorious has no glory at all. I remember having experience of our son bringing home a, a light one time that uh, he was selling flashlights and lights of different kinds at his little store there in Lewisburg. And he brought home this light, showed it to us in the evening time. We stepped out on the porch and, and uh, turned it on, and it just lit up the barn and the field. And everywhere that you looked was extremely bright. It was the brightest flashlight I have ever seen. But the next morning, the sun rose. And you take this light outside and, and turn it on, and you could not even tell where it was shining. So that which was glorious was made as nothing because of the glory that excelled. And that's how the work of the Spirit is. So as we come down to the last of this chapter here, he says this. Now the Lord, 17th verse is that spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty this is the verse that we'd like to focus on but we all with open face that's, that's being open toward God and holding back nothing beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the spirit of the Lord so what God is doing in granting to his people his, his glorious spirit that will move in their hearts is he will have a work in them that changes them. They will be changed from a previous element that they thought was glorious to one that excels in glory. Think about this this morning as you ponder what God intends to do in us. And underscore in this 18th verse the word changed. We're going to focus on change this morning. And this will be our acronym, the word change without the D, just, just change that we'd like to think about and thinking about what God intends to do with the working and moving of His Spirit in us. When we think of, of the moving of the Spirit, sometimes we just think of glorious 
experiences, like some exhilarating thought or, or feeling that just, just thrills us. Well, the Spirit will work that in us. There will be times that are like that, but that's not the primary function of the Holy Spirit of God. His function is to fill us with His thoughts, His law, His being, His holiness, His righteous character, and move us to walk in this life so that we even have impact upon others. I wondered yesterday as we were in Seattle, just, just standing back and visiting with some and, and beholding all of you up there on the hillside singing, just what was it that those people saw? I mean, there was something impressive that they were seeing. And it wasn't just physical beauty. That's not all that was there, although it was there. There was something very impressive. Several people that I spoke to, I walked up and asked them first this question, do you enjoy hearing this singing? Oh, yes. Without fail, they would say, yes, they just really like this. And then we just kept talking a little further about what was it they liked, and, and there's a message here, and so forth. But they, they had this beautiful impression, first of all, just standing back, you could see them, you saw them get out their cameras and, and uh, just video or whatever they were doing. They were impressed. But what was that that they were seeing? I think there was more than they even realized that they were seeing. There was, there was a peace here. There was something glorious here. There was perhaps something they did not have here. But as you think about this in your own life now, I want to just be very... <clears throat> very real about something as we consider being filled with the Spirit of God. We, we all have said, even this morning, I think in song and no doubt in prayer, that we want this, we desire this, we have this, this pure desire. We just, we just want this. But this C, the first letter here, represents challenges regarding being changed by the Spirit. I want you to think about this just a little. If someone were asked to ask you if, you if you wanted to be filled with the Spirit, I think I think you'd say yes. But I want to ask you first of all, are you sure? Are you sure? Let's walk through that just a little bit. Because you must be willing for something before you can even receive this spirit. I don't know if you've had this thought before as you've heard exhortation from the ministry or, or uh, read the scripture and, and, and read some instruction there. And you have had this thought, well, but that's, that's just not me. No, it's not you. It's not. But this is what God wants to change you into. And so don't try to be hanging on to some, some little vision that you have of yourself that you have come to think is normal. And this is what people know you as. This is even kind of your identity. And you don't dare change that because this is your personality. This is how you are. And without even realizing it, you're actually with your hesitation saying, 
I don't want that to change. I want to be this person that I am. I kind of I like myself. And God says, no, I want to change you into something else. So are you actually willing for that? Are you willing for that? To be changed into something else. You know, the Bible is so extreme about this that it uses terms like the old man and the new man. That sounds pretty different. And it is different. Remember hearing some children sing one time, and maybe you've heard the little song that says, The best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. Total change. Total difference. Total cleansing. And looking back then, we can see that was a good thing. But confronting it, we say, what's, what's all this about? And we have reservation. And we're not sure that we want to be touched and changed. And so, you know, you can ask yourself these questions. Do I really, do I really want to be filled with someone who will be grieved with anything of the flesh? Do I really want that? Do I want within me one who, by his power and influence, will be chastising and correcting me when I'm just doing what I want to do? Do we want to have the full influence of this spirit? Those are challenging questions and things that we must confront. He will want to purify us. He will want to change us. Do I want the change he wants to bring is an important question that we must deal with as we think about being filled and influenced by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> we, we want to call him Lord, but that means being under his lordship. And so prepare to give yourself up. And we will, we will touch more on this. And we don't want to just hit the negative side of this. But as you, as you think about receiving and, and being filled with and led by the Spirit, face these things, face them head on, and give God your full willingness and commitment to be His and His alone. We want nothing else. We want nothing else. Let's keep saying it. Let's keep believing it. <clears throat> the H in this, in this acronym this morning, in the word change, is having an assurance of his indwelling. Now these items that we're going to be touching on and questions we're going to try to answer will not necessarily be in the sequence in which they happen. But we want to deal with them, with this acronym, so that we can just cover all of this as we answer some, some questions that we often do have. <clears throat> One question that we have, I think many of us no doubt have asked this, young people ask it and older ones as well, is, is how do we know that we have the Spirit? Is that an important question? Would you say that it's important to know whether or not the Spirit is within us 
and working in us. Well, let's go to one scripture. <clears throat> 1 John 4. Let's look at this verse because it's very fascinating to me that he says this. 1 John, the fourth chapter, and the thirteenth verse. <clears throat> Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Now, you can readily see what that infers. It infers loudly that when we have the Spirit, we are aware that He's there. We're aware of the working of the Spirit. So it's an important thing for us to know whether we have the Spirit of God. Let's go to the 8th chapter of Romans and read some there. I know this passage or these scriptures have been touched on before and that's, that's fine. We'll touch on them again. Let's read several verses here. Or maybe for now, well, yes, let's just, let's just read a little. For the, we'll, we'll begin at the first verse. Therefore, there, there is therefore now no condemnation <coughs> to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, this actually points to what we've already spoken of, of there being two, two glories, two covenants. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit." I think I, want to, I think I want to skip down here. We may come back and read this, this a little later. But we're looking for, I didn't jot this one down. Looking for that verse. That says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ. The ninth verse. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We're thinking, remember, of the question, is it important to know that we have the Spirit? And how important is that? How important is that knowledge? And how important is it to have the Spirit of God? What does it say? If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He is none of his. He does not have anything if he does not have the Spirit of Christ. I think this speaks to this truth that is, it is very important for us to have the Spirit and it is very important for us to be assured that we have the Spirit of Christ. I think it is. <clears throat> Want to look at something else. John 14, let's look at this scripture, a couple of scriptures that speak of, of assurance. This is a, a major 
issue in Christianity and some difference of feeling as to how much assurance the Christian should have. John 14. <clears throat> These words are here. This is, this is Jesus speaking. In the 26th verse, we'll read a couple verses. The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So this is teaching that, that when the Spirit of God was given and came as a comforter in the hearts of the disciples, he, one of his functions would be to be teaching and reminding his people of the teachings of Jesus. Then he says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now the issue is assurance. And I think there's a lot of assurance in this statement of Jesus that he was going to give his disciples peace. How do you obtain peace? What is that peace about? Well, this peace has to do with the eternal issues being settled. It has to do with us knowing that we're walking with God and that He is walking with us. That's the only way there can be peace. Assurance is so tied to this. He was going to give His people peace. I think there's assurance in that statement. Back to 1 John again in the 5th chapter. He goes so far as to make Another statement, 1 John 5 and 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. A continual giving ourselves to belief and faith, and in the midst of that, having the assurance that we do have eternal life. This is the scripture. It's given to us for our peace, for our rest within. It's given to us so that we can have assurance. We have the Spirit of God. We wrote this down. We know that we have the Spirit. Four things here. Because He is giving us a desire for holiness... Think of that. Where did that desire come from? You don't naturally have a desire for purity and holiness. We know we have the Spirit because we have that desire. Because He is giving us a love for souls. And we'll get further into that as we deal a little bit with the fruit of the Spirit. But this, this love for souls. And I, I want to emphasize that not just... It's easy for us to have like an evangelistic fervor, fervor and, and have a desire for the souls in Seattle, but not so much a desire for the souls at home. This love that the Spirit of God gives us for, for souls of men and women is of His Spirit. It's an unnatural love. 
It's an extreme love, the kind of love that Jesus had. Thirdly, because he is giving us peace. And lastly, because he convicts us when we go astray. And we've all experienced all of those things. And by all of these things, we know that we have the Spirit of God. I want to deal a little bit, we're speaking still of, a, of an assurance of his indwelling, but this, this question comes up sometimes, and we don't want to get too <clears throat> involved in the mechanics of the Spirit of God, but the question comes up, when do we receive his Spirit? Have you ever asked that question or, or wondered about it or, or wondered if the, if the Bible actually nails this down firmly? When do we receive his Spirit? And I don't want to nail it down. I want to leave this open for the working of God in every life. We don't want to make this uh, a mechanical thing like you do uh, on your list here, one, two, and three, and then the Spirit is given. It's not quite like that. So I don't want to go there except just a couple things that are given us that I'd like to hear more of even your thoughts concerning as you think of of the Spirit of God being given and what God intends, how He intends to bestow this and when. So, of course, we have this, this, um, this teaching in Acts that uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins and, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We have like a little, a little sequence given there. And you can, you can meditate upon that. I, I like that picture. But, but let's notice more here. Let's notice some things that happened. Uh, let's turn to Acts, the 18th chapter. And I'd like to hear sometime, doesn't have to be today, the thoughts of any of you regarding the laying on of hands. Acts 18, let's notice what, what took place here. <clears throat> the 16th verse. I think we're in the wrong chapter. It might be 8.16. Yes. The 8th chapter, the 16th verse. Read a little passage here. When the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here is some disciples that had believed and were baptized, but had not yet received the Spirit. So ponder that. We don't know the answer to all of those questions that that might raise. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost, and so forth. Now, <clears throat> I'm not sure what all of you think about this, but just, just ponder this. This 18th verse 
says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. This could actually, by the English language, be stated like this. By the laying on of hands, the, uh, the Holy Ghost was given, and when, Pilate, or when Simon saw this, he offered them money. So it's very supportive here of the idea that it was by the laying on of hands that the Holy Ghost was given. So that's very interesting. If you look back at uh, Hebrews, the sixth chapter, just notice, notice these words. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Notice this very, there's very uh, central and cardinal doctrines mentioned here. And he's saying, let's go on further into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, the doctrine of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. What is the doctrine of the laying on of hands? Is the Holy Ghost not ever received except by the laying on of hands? Is that what this is saying? I'd like to hear more discussion about that. I, Christianity today has moved far down the road beyond that. And have, and have really put that away. It's more now like, like you just, uh, oh, God, I'm a sinner. I just need you. Would you please come into my heart? And kind of a moving on without many times repentance, without, without baptism, without the laying on of hands. We're not going to make any firm statements here. But when is the Holy Ghost received? And we would just say, keep, keep this in your heart and in your mind here, this function of the laying on of hands. We don't have the answer to that question. We would just say, do as the Spirit and the Word teach us, and let God take care of the timing of that infilling. We do like the, the thought that first the, the cleansing must take place before the Spirit comes. Keep that also in your hearts. Very, very important feature. We're not going to make any strong statements about, about when the Spirit comes. But again, looking back, looking back at, at the earlier messages, we will know that we have the Spirit of God by the fruit that is born. That's a very main and cardinal message. Don't get all tripped up with, with timing. Be more concerned about giving yourself totally to the Spirit of God. <clears throat> so ponder those things. The A in the word change is accessing the full influence of the Spirit. Very important thing we want to touch on here because, again, it's tempting for us to have this, this desire to experience the feeling of the Spirit or be uh, filled and enriched by some emotion, but what we are actually wanting is for the Spirit of God to possess us all, every corner of our heart. We want to hide nothing from Him. We want to open every door. We want to clean out every corner. We want nothing reserved. There is nothing more beautiful 
than being filled with the Spirit and led by Him. But we must give Him access to us, and we must also obtain then, by the, by the help of God, access to His full influence and power over our lives. So, accessing the full influence of the Spirit of God. There's a, a very, I don't know if we should take the time to go there, but I'll give you the scriptures in Ezekiel 10, the 4th verse and the 18th verse, and the 11th verse, chapter and 23rd verse, excuse me, 10.4, 10.18, and 11.23, there is a picture given us of God becoming so grieved with the nation of Israel that from that mercy seat with the cherubims over it that was so glorious there, filled with the presence of God, smoke often filled the place, symbolic of His presence. The Spirit of God finally moved from the cherubs to the threshold and out of the city and was gone from that place. The Spirit of God can leave His temple if he becomes grieved with unholiness. And you can find in that book where he took the prophet and said, look what they do. He showed them in the, in the rooms there in the basement of the temple what was going on. And while in the daytime they were professing to worship God and go through the care of the house of God and keeping the place clean and washing all the vessels and going through their normal ceremonies, at other times, they were actually worshiping other gods. And God pointed this out to him and said, Look, look what my people are doing. And the Spirit of God finally left that place. And I would just encourage you to keep pondering this. That God is not just going to magically give everyone who says they name the name of Jesus a full endowment of the Spirit of God. He is going to measure this. Measure by our submission, our desire, our sacrifice of ourself to Him, our openness to Him. That's where He fills. He does not just fill upon casual request. He fills upon pressing in and desiring and seeking and giving ourselves to Him. We noted this again that we spoke of earlier this week in Matthew 13, 58. Jesus did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In the old scripture, you can read words like this in one of the Psalms that Israel limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited Him. He wanted to do so many things. And they actually limited what He could do. Think of the grief of God over the years. Paul says this, or Jesus actually says this in John 16, 12. I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. You're not even ready to receive them. Think of the frustration in the heart of God as he desires to bless his people so much and give them so much. And he cannot. He cannot do his full work. Paul says this in Hebrews 5.11, speaking of God, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. You can't even hear what I'm wanting to say. Think of those things as you desire 
the full work of the Spirit. I'd like for you to give a little expression this morning, every one of you. I'd like to see a raise of hands of those who would like to be filled with the Spirit. Well, is that enough? I mean, let's, let's raise both hands if we'd like to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, that's impressive, but let's, let's stand up if we'd like to be filled with the Spirit this morning. I mean, that's a sweet expression. I see children back there standing up. We can be seated, but think about that. That's really what we're wanting. We're desiring this. But, but there's more. I mean, there's more to consider because another question that comes, and we'd like to deal with it now, is... The scripture says it's possible to grieve the Spirit. So, don't you believe that's so? Is it possible to grieve the Spirit? And so if we are continually grieving the Spirit, then how can He work? Like how, how can He actually move effectively? What could we do to grieve the Spirit? <clears throat> thought about taking the time to, to just ask each of you, and I think probably that would take too much time. Is any ideas on, on what we could do, each of us, that might grieve Him, that might grieve the Spirit of God? He can be grieved. We know by what we just related about His departure from the temple of God, He wanted... He wanted to abide there on the mercy seat. He wanted to be there and bless them. But, but he could not. So step by step he removed from that place. How can we grieve the Spirit? Well, we know that if we willingly engage in sin, I think that would be one thing we could say. If we willingly engage in sin... This is a great grief to the Spirit of God. Think, think what the Spirit is wanting. He is wanting purity. He's wanting a clear representation of Himself here on earth. He's wanting His people to be guided into all truth. He's wanting them to be able to speak for Him, to be a good influence for Him to, to the, those about them and to their fellows. But, but He can be grieved and hindered. If we would go to unholy places, let's suppose that we would just go visit places in this land that were unholy, wouldn't you say that, that this would be a grief to him? Well, we know that it would. We know that, just imagine a believer just seeing a place of, of uh, entertainment, some place of just, just comedians and unholy talk and and drink and dance, and a believer stopping there and, and just going in willingly, just interested, fascinated. Can't you just see the Spirit trying to say, no, no, don't do that. I don't want you in there. It would be a grief. Let's, let's suppose that any one of us would, uh, would go to a tavern 
Let's say we just got into the habit of this, of, of going to a tavern and, and we enter in and there's, and there's tables and there's a dance floor and there's, and there's a uh, countertop there with, uh, with bar stools up to it where drink is being served. And we made a habit every week of just going and, and just kind of sitting over at one of the side tables and observing. Would the spirit be grieved? We know the Spirit would be grieved. It's like the Spirit of God would be crying out, you don't, you don't belong in this place. This is not for you. This is not the place I want you and your family. Do not go there. Well, what if we didn't go inside and didn't sit at the door on a, a table, but we would develop a habit of going and just standing at the door? It was always open, and so we just, we just stood at the door and watched would the Spirit be grieved? We know that the Spirit would be grieved. Like This is an unholy place. And there's dancing and there's music and the music sounds so good. I mean, they've got the best band there every night. They're playing and, and they're good. I mean, the drummer has it really right. He can play, he can play those tunes and, and their voices. We don't understand all the words, but I mean, the sound is just... It's just great. And so we just step up to the door and, uh, and watch and listen. Would he be grieved? Well, let's suppose that we didn't do that, but we didn't want to be seen there. So we stayed at home, but we could call in. And so we had this habit of calling in and just listening to this music. Would the Spirit be grieved? We know that the Spirit would be grieved. We don't, we don't need to be listening to that stuff. Do we sometimes access carnal music? Is the Spirit grieved? Grieving the Holy Spirit of God. God wants to change this. He wants our desire to be on godliness and holiness and purity. He would question, dear saint, why do you even have this desire to try to access this stuff that's going on in these places by ungodly people? No matter how good it sounds, Your mind can go to many other places. What is it that can grieve the Spirit of God? We want full access. We want full influence. We want to be holding back nothing. The N in the word changed <clears throat> is simply for this, not I, but Christ. And we know this is from Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this, this hymn, I might just read this, 459. Not I, but Christ. Think of these beautiful words. This is, this is part of us giving 
up ourselves, and we don't know if we have time to illustrate all this, but we'll read just a, maybe one verse here. Not I but Christ be honored, loved, exalted. Not I but Christ be seen, be known, be heard. Not I but Christ in every look and action. Not I but Christ in every thought and word. Not I anymore but Christ. Let's go to Philippians 3. And <clears throat> I'd like to have the little, little papers, if you could uh, pass those out, Russell, and somebody help you. I'd like to give each person a little paper here because I'd like for you to write something down on a paper that's separate from your notes. As you think again still of giving God your whole self and leaning no more upon anything else. <clears throat> Can I have you write something down here shortly? A little exercise that, that I think is very, very useful for us. <clears throat> because our tendency is, while we do desire to give ourselves to the Spirit of God entirely, it is such a temptation for us actually to be holding on to something else. So notice here a list that the Apostle Paul had in Philippians 3, and you're all acquainted with this, you know where we're going. It was a list that gave him confidence in himself. And so he says this, this is my list, he says, I was circumcised, he said, If any man, other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness, <clears throat> which is in the law, blameless. Then he says, But what things were gained to me? He wrote it this way. These things were gained to me. These are reasons I had to feel good about myself. I gave them all up for the sake of Christ. That I might have Christ alone. Not I, but Christ anymore. I'd like for you to write on this paper. And you, it'll probably be something you won't want anybody else to see. And these are not to be handed in, but to be destroyed. Write down things that you have in your life that make you feel good about yourself. I mean, if you have a pretty face, if your hair does just right, if you have nice-looking hands or nice-looking feet, if you have a graceful form, if you have a good family, if, you're, if you have a good reputation, write those things down. Make a little list of six or seven things. Just write them down. And I know you're probably embarrassed to even do that or to confess that these are things that make you feel good about yourself, but write them down anyway. Just, just write them down. We all have things, don't we? You're all still writing. There's, there's just lots of stuff. There's lots of neat things about ourselves. Do you know that in reality, before we came to Christ, these were the things that we were leaning upon for 
to make ourselves feel good. We, we were actually trusting in these things. And do you know that after we have come to Christ, there still sometimes is a temptation to find our identity here. There still is. We would not confess this to anyone. It's like an embarrassment. We want to, as we write this list, I mean, we don't want anybody to see the things that we actually feel good about, about ourselves. We just have, you know, we have kind of a winning personality or, or we, we are good looking. We've been told we're, we're pretty or handsome or what, all this stuff. God wants this list destroyed. He wants it taken away. Not that these aren't pleasant things, but he does not want our confidence to be here. This is a moment that we can pledge before God that from this day forward, this is not where we will get our confidence and peace. This is not the place. But we want it with Christ alone and in him. Trash this list, tear it up, shred it, burn it. We've had some of our children do this when they come and ask for baptism. And we, you know, let's be sure that we're pressing in in a right way. Let's get rid of every, everything that would distract us or cause us to, as we come into the kingdom of God, have this little, this little bag that we're bringing along with us that whenever we feel a little sad, we, we can look in and find this, this pleasantness, this pleasure in our own selves. It is of flesh. It is confidence in the flesh. Some of these things may be gifts that, that God has given us. And yet, that's not how we often look at it. We often take this glory to ourselves. And it is absolutely idolatry and, and hinders us from having the full influence of the Spirit of God in our life. Just a little practical thing. Get, get rid of that list. The G in change. <clears throat> Going where God wants to take us. Going where God wants to take us. <clears throat> we don't have time, actually. We're, we should be finished here. So we'll just brief over this. We had in mind the question <clears throat> of what it means to walk in the Spirit. We were going to go back and read this and do this on your own time. Go back and read the 8th chapter of Romans because it tells us where God wants to take us and what He wants to do with us. This little section in my notes here includes the fruit of the Spirit. And I just want to make make these points about love and joy and peace and long-suffering and all the fruit of the Spirit. It's not like we naturally think. You know what our tendency is. When we think of love, our natural tendency is to think thoughts like this. Well, I know what that means. It means that I, that I should act, act loving. No. I mean, we know how to do that. We did that as we walked back and forth in the room yesterday and was polite to each other. That's not what this means. It means being transformed in our mind by God until we actually love people. Of course, loving actions will follow. 
or joy, we'll think something like this. I know what that means. It means to, to be cheerful. It means to act joyful. That's not what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is actual, inward joy because of all that God has done for us, all that He makes us, all that He's working in us, and eternal redemption and salvation beyond. It's like it's, it's automatic. It isn't, though, because we, we are commanded to rejoice because we need to maintain a, a proper focus on what God is doing and will do and has done, and that produces then joy. Our focus will produce that joy. Joy seems like a natural thing, but it is yet commanded because our focus gets off. Peace is not like just acting peaceful. It's not having a, uh, like a, just a peaceful personality or, or a gentle spirit in, in our personality. It's having within the peace of God because the eternal issues are being settled. We're at peace. Long-suffering, very much like patience. I want to just, I want to just say this because I, I think it's true. We, we think about patience or long-suffering here is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an enabling to suffer long. And patience, I think this is true and let's just... Let's just own up to it that many times patience is just the art of concealing impatience. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. But, but actual waiting and being patient on others and suffering long because the Spirit is bringing to our remembrance all that God has done in our lives and God has been so patient with us and so that transfers then into being patient with others, and the list can go on. question I think we ought to ask ourselves as we think of, of God taking us where He wants to take us is this question. <clears throat> what would I be if God had full access to me? What does He actually want to do? And pursue that thought until the work is done. Hold back nothing. The E in the word change is engage in and be aware of the battle. And I want to give, I like to think about the battle lots because it is so real. And I think <clears throat> partly because of doctrines that are being taught in Christianity today, the actual reality of the battle and the possibility of defeat is being shaded and guarded from the eyes of believers to where the battle is, oh, different phrases are used. The battle's already won is one of them that is, is a, it has truth in it, but it's applied wrongly. It's applied to, there is, has been a battle won, but our battle, our battle, we are still engaged in. And don't, I mean, what would, what, would the, uh, what would the soldiers do if you went out during a fierce day of fighting and said, fellas, the battle's already been won? They would lay down their weapons and cease to fight. And that's been the result in Christianity. 2 Corinthians 10th chapter. <clears throat> Just this 
set of verses here that we, I think, actually referred to earlier this week. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. This is part of the daily battle. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, think of our list again. I mean, that's one thing that list actually does. It exalts itself against the knowledge of the saving power of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I want us to have courage this morning and take courage. Remember that the Spirit of God is the, is the earnest, it's the token of our inheritance. Having the Spirit means that we are on a path that has a beautiful and final end, and we've been given just a little bit of that in the gift of the Spirit. And remember this, greater is He that is within you, as you think of the battle, than he that is in the world. Remember again that phrase that we have in one of our songs in our hymnal, that every virtue we possess, and every virtue won, and every thought of holiness, every thought of holiness are His and His alone. May the Lord bless us and our thoughts today.